Uh, Lord God, we come before you, and we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come together to worship you. We thank you, Lord, that we come together to uh, just to hear you. And Lord, I pray you would uh, just quiet our hearts, our minds, that we may hear your spirit. Speak to us, Lord God, we pray. May we be able to give you our attention, our focus, our ears, Lord. And we lift this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um, you know, throughout our lives, we've, we've pondered, I'm sure, many questions. I don't know how many of you grew up, you're very inquisitive. Uh, our kids were very inquisitive, had a lot of questions as they gotten older, uh, we've, we've asked many questions in our life, and I'm sure we've sought out many different uh, ways and people and means to find the answers to our questions, right? And we come up all different ways to find answers to our questions. And I don't know if you remember this. You know what this is? Have you ever seen that, the magic eight ball? I want to ask how many have had a magic eight ball, but if you don't know, not familiar with what it is, it's this little eight ball, but inside is like this triangle that's this is in some fluid. And what you do is you, you shake it and you, ask, you have a question you want to ask the magic eight ball. And as you shake it, some answer appears on the thing, and that's supposedly supposed to make you feel better, the answer to your question, right? So maybe you've done that, you know. Uh, you, you, you had some question, you shake it, and that answer that comes up, you know, makes you supposed to feel better about it. Maybe you've done this, or how many of you remember this? Is this still a thing? Is this still a thing? Do you remember that? They make the little triangle figure things, and like you ask a question, or you pick a color or something, they do that, and you give a number, and they do that, and then you ask a question, and it's supposed to reveal something like that, and usually... It has to do with a boy or a girl, right? That's the kind of answer. So we we do some of those things. But people go to these things for many different answers to the questions they have, right? Should I take this job, right? And the, the questions just grow and they change throughout our life. We have many questions we want answers to, right? Should I take this job? What should I uh, how or what school should I apply to? We're looking for those kind of answers. Those are big questions in our life and those stages in our life. And sometimes they change to, you know, should I go out with this guy or girl? You remember when you were, well, maybe not even young, when you get older, maybe you're still asking that question, right? Should I go out with this guy? Should I go out with this girl? Does this girl or does this guy like me? Will I ever have a guy or girl like me? Will I ever have a guy or girl to go out with? There's all these kinds of questions. And of course, we have deeper questions of that. Like, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose in this life, right? There's all sorts of questions we ask in life. We asked, we looked at this question Friday night, right? When we're going through struggles, Sometimes we struggle to find meaning in the struggles in our life. Why is this happening? How did this happen? What good can come out of this situation, right? So we ask all these questions 
in our life. Today we're going to look at perhaps, maybe not even perhaps, the most important question you can answer in your life. The most important question for you to answer in your life. We're going to take a look at today. In fact, it's so important, it's a matter of life and death. As we look at today's passage, we're going to first look at in the situation, what's happening in the situation, what's happening in the context. If you were there in the midst, what, was, what would be the experience like? But then we're going to also go look at also, how does this affect us? This situation we're going to take a look at today. What's happening in the moment, then we're going to look at how does it affect us as readers today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, pick up in verse 27. Mark 8, verse 27. And it goes like this. And Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, Thou art the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Now we'll stop right there. So as we saw last week, even though the disciples followed Jesus where he went, and they experienced everything that was happening, still they did not see a full picture. They didn't have a full, clear understanding of what was happening, even though he was, they were with him the whole time. And while Jesus was laying down the foundation of faith for, for faith in him, he was also preparing the disciples for their mission. I'll say that again. As Jesus was going in in his ministry, he's laying down the foundation of why to believe in him. Because he knows what's going to happen, right? But at the same time, he's preparing the disciples for their mission what they are to understand, how they are to carry out, and their mission would be to share the gospel, share the message of the kingdom of God, right? to spread the gospel of Christ, building up the church, the family of God. So we see, and we see in this map, and if, if you can look on up, I know it's kind of small, it's okay. We see the different areas that Jesus traveled. And so today we're going to see he went from, if you look on the left map, there's like a blue, in the middle is the Sea of Galilee. And up north we're going to see is Caesarea Philippi. Jesus had been traveling all throughout the region. He went all the way far up as Phoenicia, went back down, and now he's going back up north to Caesarea Philippi. And as Jesus and the disciples are traveling, they're going along to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked them two questions. And the first question he asked them is, who do the people say that I am? Who do they say I am? Now, when Jesus asks us, he's not asking for it to gather information as if he doesn't know. 
He's not asking because he's paranoid about what people think of him, right? Have you ever been in that situation before? You wonder, what do people say about me? Who do they, what kind of person do they think I am? Right? Jesus isn't paranoid about those things. But the disciples, they respond. And they respond and say, well, some say John the Baptist. The others say Elijah. Others say he's one of the prophets. Now, if you remember Herod, right? He was paranoid. He thought when he heard about Jesus, he thought, is this John the Baptist resurrected? He wasn't sure what to make of who Jesus was. Some speculated he's a teacher, he's a prophet, he's a miracle worker. Who is this mysterious person that's doing these things, that are saying these things? But then Jesus asked a second question. And with this second question, he kind of turns up the heat on the disciples. They feel a little warm under the collar, if you will. They didn't wear collars, but you know what I mean, right? Jesus follows up with the second question. He says, but who do you say that I am? What do the people say? But who do you say I am? A very simple question, but very profound implications. This is a packed question when Jesus asks them, who do you say I am? He's saying to them, who do you believe I am compared to what everybody else says? This is what they say. But compared to what they say, who do you say I am? Who do you believe I am now that you've been with me for so long? Right? They've been with Jesus all this time, seen all these things, heard all these things. He says, now that you've been with me for so long, who do you believe I am? Are you certain of who I am based on all the time you've been with me? Has it been enough time? Have you seen enough things? Have you heard enough? Are you certain now? Do you know who you are following? Or is the picture still blurry for you? Do you know who you're following? Or is it still a little bit cloudy? Perhaps when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And we see the implication of his questions. Perhaps maybe you hear God asking you the very question. After all this time, after all the sermons you may have heard in your lifetime, who do you say Jesus is? After all this time you've gone to church, you've heard about God, maybe you've seen all these things, who do you say Jesus is? After all you've been through, who do you say Jesus is? Compared to everything else that the world says, compared to all the world says and what they say Jesus is, who they believe Jesus is, who do you believe Jesus is compared to the rest of the world? The disciples chimed in and they responded to who the crowd say is. But only one responded to Jesus 
when he asks the second question. Only Peter, we only have recorded, Peter's the one who says, Thou art the Christ. Peter was bold enough to declare what he believed, at least in the moment. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You must be the one we have been waiting for. Now, it's possible Peter represented everybody else, right? Maybe he was the spokesperson for what they believed. But it certainly takes boldness to be the voice to answer that question. You know, it's interesting in John's account, within the same window of time, we don't know if this conversation takes the exact same time as what we're reading here in Mark. But John records that there were followers of Jesus who walked away, who stopped following Jesus because of what, Je- what they heard Jesus say. It was too difficult for them to understand. It was too much for them to accept. And they stopped following Jesus. And in John 6, verse 67, Jesus asks the twelve, he asks them, you do not want to go away also, do you? He saw these people who are following Jesus, and they stopped following, they stopped, and they went away. And he asked the twelve, you don't want to leave also, do you? And Peter, Peter responds, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I love this response from Peter. I love this response. When Jesus asks him, are you going to leave also? Peter asks him, Lord, whom shall we go? Where else would we go? What other alternative do we have? That's an amazing response. He spoke with boldness. And I still don't think Peter fully understood who Jesus was and what he was about to do. But he says, you have words of eternal life. You've taught and we've never heard anything else any better. There's truth to your words that we cannot ignore. What better choice do we have? Going back to Mark. Jesus, and it says, And he began, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus begins to teach them what will, what will happen to him. And notice Jesus refers to him as the Son of Man, a messianic title. Jesus reveals he will what? Suffer many things. He will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and he will be killed. But after three days, he will rise again. What happens after this? And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. 
Now, Jesus here, he wasn't speaking mysterious parables, but he was stating very clearly, very plainly. See, when we look at through our lens, right, in life, I've been talking about lenses. Last week we looked at how we need to look at the right lens. When we look through our own lens, but the way we want to see situations, we tend to perceive things based on what we think is possible, right? What we think is probable, what we anticipate, and what we hope will take place, right? When we look at situations in life, our lens, how we see things, we usually see things based on what we think is probable, what we think is likely, what we think, what we anticipate, what we hope to see. And I imagine the disciples were doing this very thing. When Jesus says, I will, the Son of Man will suffer many things. I will be betrayed. I will be arrested. And I will be killed. But I will rise again. For the disciples hearing this, I imagine they would say or think, there's no way this can happen. This right here is a sure thing. Based on my calculations, there's no way this can happen, right? Can you imagine the disciples singing, there's no way. You being put into the hands of those hypocrites, you be defeated by those guys, no way that can happen. But Peter, bold Peter, probably said what everybody else was thinking, but was too hesitant to say. Peter, in his mind, he's thinking, Jesus, there's no way you're going to lose. Jesus, there's no way this can happen. Perhaps he was even thinking, there's no way I'm going to let it happen, right? Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. Imagine feeling so strongly that you feel bold enough to rebuke Jesus. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, can we have a moment? We need to have a talk. Come, come, come here. Come here. Maybe he saw Jesus do this with somebody. He said, Jesus, let's, let's have a moment here. Let's have a private one-on-one conversation. As much as I want to mark off Peter's like citizenship grade for doing this to Jesus, I got to give him credit for boldness, right? I got to give him credit for some passion. I don't know if you remember the last time a teacher made you cry in class. Has that ever happened to you? Is there a more embarrassing moment when a teacher makes you cry in class, right? I think I remember that happening my senior year. No, not my senior year. But there's no more embarrassing moment. And I got to admit, if I put myself in this situation, in Peter's situation, I got to admit, I probably felt bold in pulling Jesus aside. But when Jesus, Jesus was to say to me, get behind me, Satan, my eyes would probably be a little moist. <laughs> I would probably like curl up tail between my legs and like I'm sorry Jesus he called me Satan that would probably break my heart Jesus says get behind me Satan for you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's Peter begins to rebuke Jesus 
But Jesus rebukes Peter. This word for rebuke, to reprove, to admonish or charge sharply. It's interesting, Mark uses this word in nine passages in his gospel account. Of the nine passages, six times Jesus is doing the rebuking. Jesus rebukes the wind in 439. He rebukes the unclean spirits twice in 125 and chapter 925. Jesus forbids reporting of who he is two times. We saw this last time, last week. And then here, Jesus rebukes Peter. I think this theme that Mark lays out, that in the midst of all these things, Jesus is not only in control, but he is the authority of all that is happening. Now you go back to what Jesus said. Did Jesus really call Peter Satan? Why would he say that? That seems a little harsh. What did Peter say? In Matthew 16, he says specifically, Peter is saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This doesn't sound so bad, right? If you're Peter, how he would feel hearing this, that his teacher, his beloved teacher, who's doing all these things, who must be the Messiah, he says, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid that this would happen, that you would be arrested, that you would be betrayed, that you would be killed. This shall never happen to you. Why does Jesus rebuke Peter? This is exactly what Satan wants. Satan would want nothing else than to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And Peter's statement is a representation of what Satan doesn't want to happen. See, Peter is not seeing the full picture. He's only seeing things in parts. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. But that Messiah must suffer first. He must die and resurrect. Peter is perceiving from what he thinks is best, right? What he can anticipate. What he thinks is probable. What he thinks should happen. But Jesus knew the cost. Jesus knew the price of his mission, what needs to be accomplished. And this price tag could not be contained by any dollar amount. Jesus goes on. He says, And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the Holy angels. So after Jesus rebukes Peter, he turns and he sees the rest of the twelve, and then there's a multitude there as well. And he turns to them, and he says, come over here, gather over here. I have something to say. 
And we see that this declaration of Jesus is going to be a turning point in his mission. This moment is a turning point in his journey. You see, wherever Jesus goes, what happened? The crowds were there, right? They were there in anticipation of Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, there was people looking for Jesus. They needed something. They needed a miracle. They needed healing. They had a a demon possessing their child or whatever it is. They went to Jesus because they had a need. They needed a miracle. Now that Jesus nears closer and closer to the cross, it's time to make things clear. Jesus lays out the decision that they face and must make for themselves. See, it's easy to seek out Jesus when we're in need, right? When we need a miracle, when we need help, it's easy to turn to Jesus. Would you seek out Jesus if it meant you're going to face more suffering? Think about that. Would you seek out Jesus if it meant more suffering? Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, If you desire to follow me, be my disciple, be my follower, two things need to happen. Deny yourself and pick up your cross. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to deny self? To affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone. To forget one's self. It's interesting, this Greek word for deny is only used in two contexts. In two contexts in the New Testament. And in those two contexts where this word is used in the New Testament, it's either referencing denying yourself or denying Jesus. In all the contexts this word is used, it's used to either to deny self or deny Jesus. Very interesting. How living for self is complete counter to following Jesus. You see, essentially, what it means to deny self is to say no to self. Literally, to disown one's self. You are no longer living for self-interest. Why? Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you are going to be required to do things that will be uncomfortable. To follow Jesus, you're going to be required to make some decisions that are going to be undesirable to you in that moment. And you may be facing situations that will require more hardship. Following Jesus will require you to do what is contrary to your natural desires. Your natural desires sinful desires. 
And then he says, pick up your cross. Now for the hearers of the time, when they hear this, this is probably where Jesus lost some people. If he tells them, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself. And perhaps in their thinking, they're like, okay, I understand, you know, live for God, devotion to God, I understand that. But he says, pick up your cross. This means a whole nother different picture for them. You see, when people would be crucified, they would carry, they would bear the crossbeam of the cross that they would be bound to, whether it's nailed or hung on. And they would carry that beam across to where they were going to be crucified. And as they carry their cross along the way, you would have people throw insults and make them feel shame for the punishment, the crime that they committed that led them to the cross. And the people know this. It's interesting. This commentary, this commentator wrote, Crucifixion was viewed by ancient writers as the most ignoble of deaths. It was cruel, barbaric, and appropriate only for the most despicable of enemies and offenders. To bear the cross therefore meant to follow Jesus even to the point of humiliation, extreme suffering, and death. This would not get lost in the hearers of the day. They knew what the cross represented and what it took when you let, we were being led to the cross. This image of bearing, picking up your cross to follow him. This is not a rosy picture. Jesus doesn't let this, lay out this nice, nice, comfortable message to the people. He doesn't say, if you follow me, you will experience great prosperity on earth. I will give you whatever your heart's desires. You will no longer be poor. You will no longer suffer from sickness. You will be loved and popular. People will love you. Jesus doesn't paint this picture. It's quite the contrary. To follow Jesus, you must be willing to deny yourself and follow the path which people will cast shame and insult on you. You must be willing to face the suffering that comes with it. See, this is ironic, right? Because throughout this time, the people were flocking to Jesus because they had a need. They needed a miracle. They needed something good to happen. So they flocked to Jesus. Wherever they heard he was, they went to Jesus because they had a need. But at this point in time, what does Jesus say? From here, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself now. Be willing to pick up your cross and follow me. You sought me because you have a need. If you want to continue to follow me, you must be willing to deny yourself and be willing to face the consequences. He goes on to say, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange 
for his soul. For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Whoever wishes, or in other words, whoever desires, whoever has in their mind, in their tent, intent, if you have the desire to save your life, your soul, you want to preserve it. You don't want anything to happen to your nice little life you have here on earth. You want to do all you can to preserve this nice little life that you're living. You don't want any problems, any struggles, any suffering. He says, if you desire to save this life on earth, you will destroy it. You will lose it. He says, but if you desire to destroy or lose your life, you will save it. You will preserve it. If you want to just keep your life, live your nice little bubble life, that's what you're living for, then you're going to lose your life. But if you're willing to surrender, destroy the life and surrender it, it's not my own God. He says, you will save it. He says, for, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels shall save it. Contrast this with desiring to follow him. He uses that same word. If you desire to come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. But if you desire to save your life, if you desire to say, you know what, that price is too much for me. I can't deny myself. I want my, what I want in my life. If that's what you desire, you're going to end up losing it. Jesus goes on to say, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. What advantage is it to gain all that you can have? If you gain the whole world at the expense of your soul, what profit was it? What would you give in exchange for your soul? God, if I could just have this right now, this is what I want in my life. I want this. I'll get back to you later. Jesus lays down the bottom line. And he puts it into perspective. Whoever is ashamed of me and my word in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him. You see, what he's saying, if you're unwilling to face people shaming you for my sake, if you're ashamed of Jesus and his word in this sinful generation, 
He says, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of the Father and his angels. If you're ashamed of me now, he'll be ashamed of you when he returns. Jesus commanded disciples to not share with others yet who he is. He said, don't tell anybody who I am, similar to the previous miracles. And I wonder why is that is, where that is. Perhaps those people saw more clearly who he was, and Jesus was not, it wasn't time to let it out who he was. But for the people listening to Jesus, I imagine they're left confused, wondering what he means. Where is Jesus going? What shame would they face? Why would they be ashamed of him? We see a series of passages involving this theme of belief and unbelief, faith and doubt. The blind and deaf are are able to see and hear, yet the ones who can physically see and hear cannot see and understand. And with the disciples here, they don't fully comprehend the moments, but they will eventually fully understand. See, we as readers now, we can see the full picture. We see it clearly what Jesus is saying. And what he's saying is the most important question we can answer in our life. He asked the disciples, who do you say I am? And he asked us the same question today. He asks you, who do you say Jesus is? Because your answer will have eternal consequences. Do you answer Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Or are you listening to what the crowds say? Are you gauging it based on what everybody else says, what the world says Jesus is? I like this quote by C.S. Lewis. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and tell him or, and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being or him being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was not just a great moral teacher. It's either he is who he says he is, or he is a liar, he's a lunatic, and he's not worth following. See, Jesus forces us to answer that question, to arrive to either faith or unbelief, either trust or rejection. He did not claim that, you know what, I will be whomever you want me to be. I can be whomever you're comfortable with believing. He leaves no room for that. We're living in times where it's being increasingly more and more uncomfortable to be a professing Christian. It is harder and harder to be a professing Christian in your life in our lives, in the different circles in our lives. And you're going to face pressure to compromise your faith because the crowd is going to label you as hateful, as a bigot, as whatever it is. Satan knows this, and Satan intends to make it as uncomfortable for you as possible to make you stumble in any way possible. Evil used to be distinguishable, but now what is evil is what makes you feel uncomfortable. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, if it makes you feel uncomfortable who you are, then you know what? It must be evil. And people face this pressure. But Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, and in my words, in this sinful generation, he was ashamed of you when he returns in the glory. So there's three conclusions we can have, and I'll, I'll wrap it up in this. I think there's three conclusions we can arrive to when we, ask, when we answer that question, who do we say Jesus is? I reject, I believe, but I believe and will. We can say, I reject Jesus is who the Bible says he is. I reject what the Bible says he did. You can say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm unwilling to surrender my life. I hear what you're saying, and part of me wants to believe that's true, but I just can't let go of my life. I am unwilling to surrender my life to him. Or we can say, I believe in Jesus, and I will follow but only one of these conclusions leads to everlasting joy. I mentioned before, and I'll wrap it up with this. I mentioned to you all before, when I prepare a message, I prepare it thinking, you know, this could be my last message. It could be your last message you hear. I don't know here. Only God knows where you're at with the Lord. Only God knows how you answer that question, who is Jesus to me? If you have not arrived to that place, you can say, I believe Jesus is Savior and Lord. 
that I can surrender my life to him, I ask you, what is your hesitation? What is your fear? Are you trying to hold out for something better? Do you feel like you can exchange your faith for something better? Do you actually think there's something in this life that's worth more than placing your life in the hands of the Almighty Creator? Do you think there's something better that you can have or experience in this small amount of time in our life that's better than eternity with the Lord? I think the mistake people have is they think, Lord, if I I give my life to you, God, then there goes my joy. There goes my fun. There goes my pleasure. Then I can't do all these things that everybody is having fun with. If you could only see the emptiness that's behind those things that you're seeing and what people are experiencing, if you could only see the brokenness, the counterfeit joy They think they're experiencing, but in real life, they are hurting. They are broken. They are lost. And they're grasping for anything in this life that will give them happiness. And you're looking at that and you're saying, I would rather experience that than trust my life to the hands of God. He wants to give you the real thing not the counterfeit joy, not the counterfeit stuff. And he will give you joy and purpose and meaning, not just in this life, but eternity. I'll go back to what Peter said. Lord, where else are we going to follow? Who else will we follow? Ask yourself that. Who else am I following that's worth following and not following Christ? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord Jesus, I don't know if there's any more important question that we could ever answer in our life than who do I say Jesus is? is. Because if I say he is Savior, I believe that he died for my sin. He paid the price for my sin. My sin can be forgiven. I can be given healing. And if I say he is Lord, I confess that, Lord, I surrender my life to you. I deny myself and I follow you. Lord, I pray again for anyone here who's uncertain, who's scared, who doubts. May they come to the truth of who you are and leave behind whatever they've been following whomever they've been following. 
And may they say, I will follow you, Lord Jesus. If that's you, I pray that you would pray that, Lord, I believe in you and I want to follow you all my days. We give you glory, Lord. We acknowledge you as Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship.